Welcome to The Way Home with Laura Smith, the show that brings you wonderful guests, helpful advice, and uplifting stories. The Way Home, live inspired. Here's your host, Laura Smith. Great to be with you as always. And I'm just thinking about how over the years there are certain stars and uh, people of, of great importance have stood the test of time in that people... Uh, love them long after they're gone and while questions still remain around their situations around their life and their death we have a really interesting interesting conversation today with jay margolis he is a new york times best-selling biographer and author he's written a few books on marilyn monroe now uh First one being The Murder of Marilyn Monroe, Case Closed. And you'll hear some details about that book, which are really quite chilling. But the one we're also really going to discuss is called My Meryl, Marilyn Monroe, Ronald Reagan, Hollywood and Me. And this is a book written in conjunction with a woman by the name of Terry Carger, who is uh, part of a sort of Hollywood dynasty family who had the good fortune of being a little girl when Marilyn Monroe was dating her father. And so therefore became, well, just a uh, almost like a sister with Marilyn Monroe. And um, she has a really beautiful account of who she was up close and personal as a human being, in addition to how she was perceived as a movie star. And the book is just chock full of anecdotes. In addition to Ronald Reagan, because Terry Carger also got to know that man as his ex-wife, Jane Wyman, was married to her dad, after Marilyn Monroe and he were together. So it's a quite an amazing story of Hollywood stardom and extravaganza, but heard through the voice of a friend uh, to these people. So they can tell you the personal side of what they were like. Very interesting stuff. And it's all brought to you today by the wonderful people at Balance of Nature. Balance of Nature is just a remarkable company that's made up. Well, actually, it's a family business that is turned into a wonderful extended family type of business. Um, it started just with their family uh, in a, I think it was like an office over an auto parts store or something. And uh, Dr. Howard and his wife, Susan, and their five children would sit and fill these capsules after Dr. Howard discovered that fruits and vegetables were the phytonutrients that really produced real nutrition for people and that people were desperately needing and not getting. They figured that out or he figured that out and they started the company in this little space. Well, it has so developed after 20 some years into this really incredible company and manufacturing and and boy, they're actually even turning Balance of Nature into a much wider community uh, installment of a new town that's being built in Utah to sort of commemorate all things American and our founding fathers. And we'll tell you more about that as uh, different uh, reports come in from how this uh, United We Pledge is really doing something remarkable out west there to maintain the wonderful history that we have here in America and of our country and where it began, including its constitution. But all of that is done by the same people who create Balance of Nature, fruits and veggies in a capsule, and the fiber and spice, those three wonderful products that you can't buy in a store, nor can you um, try to replicate them through a man-made vitamin made in a laboratory because they do, it just doesn't exist. Nothing else exists like this on the market. Balance of Nature, it's just 
food, phytonutrients that are um, put together to the tune of 32 different ones um, in concert so that you get the most bang for your nutritional buck is basically what it is. And I know that uh, after taking it for 12 years, I would not even want to think about living without it because it has been a game changer in both my family's life and my life as well and many many friends and of course the people you hear on the commercials all the time those are real people they don't hire actors to talk about the product these are real people who have been taking balance of nature and who have seen extraordinary results with doing so you can get in on the nutritional bandwagon by going to balanceofnature.com and when you do make sure you put my name into the promo code that way they know that you heard it here on the way home with Laura Smith. And you'll also get 35% off your first preferred order and free shipping. Put the word Laura into the promo code. Just my first name is fine. L-A-U-R-A for that great discount. When we come back, Jay Margolis talking about the new book, My Merrill, Marilyn Monroe, Ronald Reagan, Hollywood and me. Don't go away. It's the way home. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. There are a few uh, movie stars, Hollywood types, and even presidents who, no matter how long time goes by, the mystique surrounding them, the adoration for them, and their iconic level of, of um, you know, star-studdedness just never, ever goes away. In fact, sometimes I think with time... Some of the things get even more pronounced in terms of wanting to really know true stories. Well, I think Marilyn Monroe definitely captures that essence. And on another hand, Ronald Reagan um, is is equally as fascinating, interesting and beloved by many others as well. I have an author with me today. He happens to be a New York Times bestselling author. His name's Jay Margolis, and he has written a book in conjunction with a woman named Terry Carger, whose family was very close, close personal friends of Marilyn Monroe. And he has written what I think is going to be the quintessential biography of from someone whose perspective of actually being a close personal contact of Marilyn Monroe and having some real uh, insight himself as to possibly her death, surrounding her death, as he writ- wrote another book called The um, Case Closed, The Murder of Marilyn Monroe. So we're going to hear all about this Jay Margolis, all the way from Hollywood, from the West Coast. Thank you so much for joining us today on the way home. Well, thank you for having me, Laura. That's, I mean, you've written some really interesting books here, and I don't care whether or not you know Marilyn Monroe's movies, which I don't know that many, but I think like everyone on the planet, she intrigues me just by her sheer magnetic uh, personality and artistry, and at the same time, just all the mystique around her untimely death at such a young age, at 36, you ended up writing this biography with the Carger family, with Terry Carger. Was it because you had written um, Case Closed about uh, the death surrounding Marilyn Monroe? What happened was I was uh, doing interviews for the murder of Marilyn Monroe case closed and I called up Terry and at first she didn't really want to write a book about Marilyn because she said, I don't want anyone to think I'm trying to profit off of knowing her. But at the same time, I've seen so much garbage about Marilyn that maybe it's time to set the record straight. 
So she consulted with her stepbrother, Michael Reagan. And the reason that Michael Reagan's her stepbrother is because when her father, Fred Carger, who was a vocal coach at Columbia Pictures, uh, married uh, Jane Wyman when Terry was 11, Michael Reagan, who was seven at the time, and uh, Maureen Reagan became her uh, stepbrother and stepsister. And because, you know, Ronald Reagan had been recently divorced from Jane Wyman at that time. Really incredible. Um, so th- at the time that Terry Carger, um, before her father had uh, married Jane Wyman, he was the boyfriend, vocal coach as well of Marilyn Monroe uh, before she was Marilyn Monroe, really, right? When she was Norma Jean, is it Mortensen? Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, Norma Jean Mortensen, which was, uh, she became that in 1946. And then uh, she met Terry's father in 1948. So she was Marilyn at the time. But she oh, was okay. famous Marilyn, if, if that's what you mean. Because that really happened like in 1952 with uh, 1953 with Niagara and Gentlemen Preferred Blonde. She became a superstar. But in 1948, when they first met Marilyn in the spring, um, you know, Fred Carter, her father, uh, you know, um, Terry's father was dating Marilyn, who was 21, and Fred was 32, and uh, Terry was six years old. And this was a relationship that lasted for 14 years on Terry's end, and including her father, too. You know, the romance only lasted about a year, but the connection with uh, Terry's family, especially Nana, the grandmother, who was Ann Connolly, her legal name, uh, that was the mother that Marilyn never really had, you know, because her mother, when uh, Marilyn was seven, was institutionalized. And so uh, Nana acted as uh, Marilyn's mother for 14 years. So they knew her longer than she knew any of her three husbands. <laughs> yeah, isn't that incredible? And, you know, reading, um, you know, pieces of the book about Marilyn Monroe's life, this is another thing that's always just my heart has always kind of just been very sad about her her childhood was just so bereft so lonely and so she was an orphan basically um who ended up ultimately raising her was was it in an orphanage or, or did she have some some people here and there foster parents around well, from the age of nine to 11, she was in the orphanage. And then, um, you know, she uh, went to go live with uh, Aunt Anna, who was the aunt of her guardian, Grace Godard McKee, who was actually the best friend of uh, her mother. And uh, so they uh, she took uh, guardianship of her through the courts. And so Grace um, McKee, you know, started to raise Norma Jean and said, well, you know, maybe you can go hang out with Aunt Anna. My, you know, and became like her Aunt Anna, basically. And what was interesting about Aunt Anna was that Aunt Anna Lauer initially had the dreams to become an actress when she was a little girl. So, you know, she told Marilyn, well, you're like the daughter I never had. You have the same dream I do. And Marilyn started to have this dream to become an actress when she was eight years old. She was in a school play. And she, uh, you know, really the the school teacher uh, said to her, you have done the best performance I've ever seen in this school. And so that really got her the encouragement to want to become an actress. And that's something that's hardly known about um, Marilyn, but it's uh, really a special thing because that drove that little girl to want to live her dream. And look, she did it. She became Marilyn Monroe, the most famous woman in the world at that time. Yes. You know what? When I think of Marilyn Monroe, I also think of Elvis Presley, just in the way the two were both at that time, that period in time where I don't think there really were superstars of that magnitude before that, because obviously, you know, with motion pictures and and television and things like that, they both sort of were kind of new in that superstardom way. And I, I think very 
ill-equipped to handle the way the world was dealing with them. And I think that led both of them to an, an untimely death and sad demise and not saying they didn't have something to do with it. But however, you know, really, um, it, it was so, I think, unprecedented the way they were treated um, as these icons, but at the same time, mistreated by the people who should have been probably watching out for them a bit more and helping them along the way. It was just a sort of unknown territory to be a, a star of that magnitude, I think. But Back to Marilyn, as she knew the Carger family um, back in the 1940s, and she was babysitting Terry Carger at the time when she was six years old. And it sounds to me like um, Terry really wants to highlight the fact that Marilyn was such a special, beautiful human being, not just the blonde bombshell the world came to know, but the kind of soul that she had and kind of human being that she was. Tell us a little bit about that. You know, Marilyn really, in the end, just wanted people to like her. And, you know, she saw that other women were very jealous and would, you know, speak ill about her behind the set. She'd tell this to Terry and she says, well, I know you would never betray me. And Terry says, of course I wouldn't, you know. And so uh, what people don't really know about Marilyn is she was an overly generous person. She would give people gifts, you know, and for example, um, there was this one gift, uh, you know, that she gave to uh, Nana, and it said, to Anne, with my deepest love and friendship, Marilyn, it was a 14-karat gold charm bracelet, and that was what must have cost a fortune. And she also bought a, 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 a $500 gold watch for Fred, the father, and he says, why haven't you engraved my name on it? And she says, well, because one day you'll find another woman to love, and my present won't have any use to you if it has my name on it. <laughs> You know, uh-huh. but imagine that a five hundred dollar gold uh, watch that she paid on installments, and she probably paid on installments for the nineteen fifty three, um, you know, charm bracelet that she gave to Nana, and uh, you know, Terry uh, pictures that shows that in the book. It's, there's a, pictures of it. It's beautiful, and it's probably worth a fortune today. I can imagine because um, it's anything from Maryland sells for millions of dollars, and uh, also when uh, Terry was six years old, she was about to be seven. And she was looking in the store window one day with her father and Marilyn. And she says, hey, dad, can I get that uh, blue dress with the white bow? And she says, you know, honey, it's a little expensive, maybe next year. And so then when uh, the presents come around, she opens up her presents. And she's, she's about to thank her dad for that blue dress with the white bow. And then she opens up the, the little card, and it's from Marilyn. And, and she was so surprised that Marilyn had got it for her. And later on, when she learned that Marilyn had paid on installments for the watch, she realized that she must have done the same thing for the dress because it was very expensive. Oh, yeah. So she was often probably doing for others what she had, you know, hoped and wished that she had had as a, as a child, but many times did not, had nothing for a while. Um, so let's kind of flash forward to the point <clears throat> where she she does get married. Um, Joe DiMaggio is one of her famous marriages. Um, it doesn't last long. Apparently, Joe DiMaggio was thinking he was going to to get a wife. He he wasn't bargaining for the superstar actress um, that Marilyn Monroe was. And so that one did not last. Correct. Right. He, he wanted someone who was a homebody, somebody who would throw away their whole career. And, you know, Marilyn wasn't about to do that. In fact, people would come up um, in front of them both and, and ask for her signature and not his. He'd get all bent out of shape, you know, and very easy to make him upset. And during the seven-year itch, the whole uh, skirt-blowing scene ruined their whole marriage 
because Walter Winchell, the columnist, who was a friend of Joe, said, hey, you got to check this out. And so they were actually uh, doing this scene, Billy Wilder, the director of The Seven-Year Itch, and uh, they were just making her dress go up and her panties would be showing and be kind of uh, crude, as you would say today. And they obviously didn't use those shots. They reshot it under studio conditions later, but that was just a big publicity tour, you know, just to get people to come see the movie. You know, people were going to go see something that was sexual. And when Joe saw that, man, he was very upset. And uh, Terry that, said that he could, um, oh, oh, that that she that uh, he was very uh, mad, um, and that she raised her uh, uh, voice on the phone. Marilyn did, and then hung up on Joe, and then um, and then Terry said that he never called back. <laughs> that, that was that. Yeah, didn't take too much. Well, um, it, you know, interesting things. Obviously, a sign of those times. Um, hopefully, those are you know in the past. But um, then. Then she goes on, obviously, and and there is involvement with the president of the United States, uh, mm-hmm. Robert, uh, excuse me, John F. Kennedy. And I say Robert, too, because I know you have something to know about, you know, their, the involvement with the Kennedys without giving away everything. Um, but give us some some things that are in the book that we're going to uh, we want everybody to hear about, which is my Merrill, Marilyn Monroe, Ronald Reagan, Hollywood and me which is by Jay Margolis, who we're speaking with right now, in conjunction with Terry Carger, the car, the woman who um, was babysat by Marilyn Monroe and remained very close friends with until her death. What was the involvement with the Kennedys um, from, from a reality standpoint? We know all the stories we hear and the rumors and such, but um, I'm assuming it goes much deeper than that. That's correct. You know, Walt, uh, Terry said that while Marilyn was alive, she didn't hear anything about the Kennedy brother affairs because, uh, Terry's mother, Patty, who was an entertainment lawyer to the stars like Cary Grant, um, that she did hear after Marilyn died that her mother, Patty says, yes, uh, Marilyn was having an affair with President Kennedy. Yes, Marilyn was having an affair with Robert Kennedy. The same thing with Nana after Marilyn died. Nana told Terry about, um, you know, her involvement, Marilyn's involvement with both Kennedy brothers. So we do know that. And uh, I was out of respect, you know, because they were closer confidants and adults, you know, like uh, Terry was 21 when Marilyn died, just become an adult. And so it wasn't something that I think um, Marilyn really wanted to discuss with Terry. But Terry did say that her uh, mother and grandmother did reveal that information after Marilyn died. And um, this is what uh, eventually led to Marilyn's death was her entanglement with the Kennedy brothers. And so there are some people who um, believe what uh, basically the the reports that were filed after her death was that she committed suicide. So a lot of people believe that. But you've written a, a book basically about her death. Um, so so uh, the murder of Marilyn Monroe case closed. Did you come to that conclusion that she was murdered through extensive research and facts that were uncovered, but that just have not been reported? I came to the conclusion and they initially had the official reports as probable suicide. So that's not definitive in itself. And, you know, Dr. Thomas Noguchi spoke to two people, uh, Jane Mansfield's press secretary, uh, Raymond Strait, and also uh, the daughter of uh, Marilyn's last uh, professional photographer, George Barris, uh, Caroline Barris. And the two of them, both told me that they had private phone conversations with uh, Dr. Thomas Noguchi, who performed the autopsy on Marilyn, you know, who wrote Probable Suicide, and that he was forced to say Probable Suicide. He was forced 
to not say homicide. He wanted to say homicide. He wanted to bring out murder, and they wouldn't allow him to do it. And uh, he said that she must have been injected. You can't, you know, um, have enough drugs in your blood in the toxicology reports to kill three people and not have one undissolved capsule in her stomach, which is what that showed in the autopsy. Can you imagine that the equivalent of 64 pills is in her blood, about, uh, you know, 47 nebutals and 17 chlorohydrates in her blood, but there's not one undissolved capsule of that in her stomach? That means she didn't swallow that. And to add credence to that, uh, the ambulance attendant, James Hall, said that uh, when he got to the scene, he said, what's wrong with her? And Pat Newcomb, who was the publicist of Maryland says, I think she took some pills. So that directed James Hall to smell her mouth. He noticed no odor of drugs, no odor of uh, pear, which is a fruity smell from the chlorohydrate. So she couldn't have broken down the pills and swallowed it in a drink. It would detect it anyway. So that didn't happen. No, no way, no how in her mouth. And he also noticed there was no indication of vomit. Normally when people, you know, have a suicide, they vomit those pills. I mean, imagine that 64 pills. That's a ridiculously amount of pills. That means that had it actually been showing up in her stomach, that would have been a suicide. But because it didn't show up in her stomach, it means that it entered in some other manner. Mm. And they're thinking through a syringe. Syringe injection. And were there any reports of anybody in her home the you know the night of the purported suicide um is there any record of anybody being near her that night yes in fact uh norman jeffries who was the handyman and son-in-law of mrs murray the housekeeper he told donald wolf that um he and mrs murray were ordered out of the house by bobby kennedy and uh james detective james ahern and detective archie case of the gangster squad of the lapd so you don't, you know, go call the police and the police, right? The police are already next to Bobby Kennedy. <laughs> and so he, um, about 9.30 at 10 o'clock, there's absolutely nothing wrong with Marilyn. But most accounts who try to say she's a suicide say that she's, you know, dying at this point. But, you know, Norman Jeffrey said there was nothing wrong with Marilyn. She was right there and safe. And so they went to the house of Mary W. Goody Coons Barnes, who was at 12304, right next door. And she also told Sergeant Jack Clemens, the first officer at the scene, that she had seen Bobby Kennedy with those two men. And one of them was carrying a black medical bag. And so they were in the and when they left the house, Marilyn was suddenly naked in the guest cottage, leaning on the phone. And and she was unconscious. And so what, uh, Mrs. Murray, according to Norman Jeffries, uh, did the responsible thing called Schaefer Ambulance. I interviewed Schaefer Ambulance at Garo Lobos. He said he got the first call at Beverly and Western, but they couldn't have gotten there if they're going 100 miles an hour. It's like 15 minutes away. So they transferred it, and he volunteered that James Hall and Murray Leibowitz got the call. So he's already telling us the people who said that they were there were there. And what happened next was that they saw Marilyn. They, they put a resuscitator on her. Her color was coming back. Then this guy in a business suit says, I'm her doctor. Give her positive pressure. And so, you know, you have to yield to a doctor. Otherwise, you get fired. He pulls out a hypodermic syringe with a needle, a heart needle affixed to it, fills it with a brownish fluid, which is not adrenaline, and then he injects it into her heart, and then he says, I'm going to pronounce her dead. You can leave. At first, they thought it was adrenaline, but, you know, they always did notate it was brownish fluid. But when they saw the autopsy report in 1982, they said, well, wait a minute, what did I see? And, uh, you know, her stomach's empty. That's weird. And I noticed that she had no indication of vomit, so I don't really think this was a suicide. And he wasn't really trying to help her. He was trying to kill her. (laughs) Wow. That's heavy, heavy duty stuff. When you write something like this and you're a young guy, um, do you have any kind of thing, any fear surrounding (laughs) dredging up these kind of facts and doing true research on it? 
it, has it um how has it been for you since you published that book I have seen a car on my street with a guy with sunglasses and a suit, and I did not want to take the photograph of his license plate, if you know what I mean. (laughs) But that was one thing that kind of disturbed me. And there were times when I used to talk to the president of Maryland, a member, Greg, um, uh, let's see, Greg Schreiner, I believe it is. And uh, he uh, basically, there was a lot of clicking noises on the phone call, and I just kind of really got distracted by talking to him. I couldn't talk to him and listen to all those noises. But that's about it, from what I could tell. My guest is Jay Margolis. He has written, well, he's a a, best, a New York Times bestselling biographer and author. He wrote um, The Murder of Marilyn Monroe, Case Closed. And he's also written a biography in conjunction with a woman, Terry Carger, whose family was very involved um, on a personal level with Marilyn Monroe, um, really before her meteoric rise to stardom. Um, but through... Through more years of her adult life before her death than most anybody. And this book is called My Merrill, Marilyn Monroe, Ronald Reagan, Hollywood and Me. So let's now flip real quick to uh, Ronald Reagan, because the the father of Terry Carger, um, who with this book is about and with, um, as you mentioned before, was a boyfriend of Marilyn Monroe for a year. But then he ultimately ended up marrying Jane Wyman, um, who was married to Ronald Reagan before Nancy. And so uh, tell us where Ronald Reagan fits into this. Um, did the Carger family get to know him at all because of Jane Wyman and and uh, uh, Michael Reagan, the son? Yes, absolutely. You know, they uh, see uh, Terry um, met Jane Wyman on a Halloween, 1952. And then, the, you know, uh, Fred and Jane got married the next day, November 1st, 1952. So during uh, 1952 and 1953, uh, Terry's cousin, Johnny was having um, some, her, his parents were having some marital problems. And so he also got to stay and bunk with Michael while Terry got to bunk with Maureen, you know, over in uh, Jane Wyman's house. And oftentimes Ronald Reagan would come over in his Ford station wagon. They'd sing like a lot of, of, uh, songs, you know, hymns like uh, 99 Beers on the Wall. I mean, really like silly songs and um, taught uh, Ronald Reagan taught Johnny, you know, Terry's cousin, how to shoot a rifle, how to cut wood. Um, Terry even had her own goat on the ranch, <laughs> believe it or not. And so they got to know him as not the actor, but as a human being and someone who was very kind. And And uh, Johnny says that he provided a very fatherly love to me during a, a period of time when I was going through a lot with my parents fighting each other. And so it was very nice how, you know, he got to build a little uh, model uh, airplanes with Michael. And he said that Michael would get mad and say, everything will be fine. It'll be just great. Don't worry about it. He'd just get really upset. You know, so Michael would get upset. They even shared their birthdays on, near each other because they were both in March. And so they had a fun time doing that. And uh, also got to, um, Johnny got, got to share in, uh, um, you know, being at Marine's birthday in, in January at MCA headquarters. And so there were a lot of times um, when Jane would, uh, uh, you know, bring everybody along and they'd kind of be like an extended family, which was really nice. And it was a beautiful experience for everybody. How long were uh, was Jane Wyman married to Fred Carger? Let's see. It was uh, the first marriage was from 52 until about uh, 54. And then uh, they got married again uh, 61 to 65. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. and so they got married uh, uh, and divorced twice. 
<laughs> that happens. It absolutely happens. It's all fascinating stuff. A lot of great historical information on these iconic people, Marilyn Monroe, Ronald Reagan, and through the eyes of uh, what was a young woman during those times, Terry Carger and her family. Her grandfather, incidentally, was the he was the owner of some big Hollywood he was a director general of Metro Pictures, which after his death in 1922, he was 46 years old. He had a heart attack. He was a millionaire back then. It's like $13 million when he died. And uh, Metro Pictures merged with uh, Goldwyn and Mayer and became MGM. And so this was uh, Terry was born into this uh, famous family. That's why Marilyn felt so comfortable around Terry is because fame never meant anything to Terry. And and so she could feel normal around Terry when after Marilyn had become famous, she felt she had a place to come home to and people People are not going to go sell her autograph and be silly and do, you know, dumb things like that that most people do with famous people. Wow. That's really incredible stuff. Well, as I mentioned before, you're a young guy, Jay Margolis. Um, Are you writing anything now? Yes, I'm working on two books on the Robert Kennedy assassination. I'm um, working on one by myself, um, and then I'm working on another one with Scott Enyart, who at the time was 15 years old, and he was a uh, Fairfax you know, high school newspaper. He was taking pictures, and he stole an embassy room pass, he and his friend, uh, to go get in the, into the Ambassador Hotel that night, and he uh, was taking pictures as Robert Kennedy was being shot. And so this woman named Joan Barr said to the police, she said, hey, that kid was taking pictures while Kennedy was being shot. So they went after him like a heat-seeking missile. And with, uh, you know, at gunpoint, they took his pictures. And he never got back the pictures that he took inside the pantry. In fact, there's actually a picture of him standing on the steam table, as he told in the recording to the police, where he said, I was, I was standing on his table. And you could see him as the only person that's actually photographing downward like this. And mm-hmm. so there's evidence that he was in the pantry from photographic evidence, not just his word. And uh, they tried to make it look like he wasn't there. And then in 1996, he sued the city of Los Angeles to get his pictures back. And he won. He got like over $600,000. And uh, then the they, they reversed it because you know, the appeal, the city appealed, of course. They didn't want to have egg on their face. And they won. And they, they reversed a little bit of the judgment in part. They said it was like anti-police uh, bias on the jury's part, which was nonsense. Totally can't prove that. But, you know, that's how that went. And um, that's what I'm working on now. Wow. I'll tell you what, it's, you know, there is so much, uh, boy, that just keeps seeming like it's trying to come to light, no matter how much either the government or society tries to squelch it. Uh, these stories don't go away. And eventually we can only hope that all the truth can come out. I know you're trying to help people do that. New York Times bestselling author and biographer Jay Margolis is my guest. He's written The Murder of Marilyn Monroe, Case Closed, and also his latest with Terry Carger, a friend of Marilyn Monroe, called My Meryl, Marilyn Monroe, Ronald Reagan, Hollywood, and me. If you want some fascinating facts and uh, really setting the tone for what uh, the true Marilyn Monroe was like and the true Ronald Reagan, for that matter, uh, this book has it all. Thank you so much for being with us today on The Way Home. Where can people find the books? anywhere or on your website um thank you and uh on amazon.com you can find it just type in my merrill and you'll see it on the first or second search um you could type it jay margolis i also have an instagram Marilyn murdered with an ed at the end you know a murder and then add ed so Marilyn murdered <laughs> and that's okay. on, i have about ten point nine thousand followers and uh you could check that out 
Okay, and my Merrill is spelled uh, my, and then Merrill is M-A-R-I-L. That's what Terry Carger used to call Marilyn Monroe when she was a child. Thank you so much, J. Mark Olis, for coming on the way home. Take care. Have a great day. You're listening to The Way Home. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Well, did you know that January is National Blood Donor Month? Now you do, and you're going to see how crucial this information is. Cliff Newmark, Senior Vice President for uh, Vitaland, is the nation's largest nonprofit independent blood donation organization. And he's here to tell us why, uh, well, blood donations are down and what that could mean to us. Thank you so much for joining us, Cliff. Thanks, Laura. So, um, okay, I can understand that during COVID-19, Blood donation was down, and we all know why. But what now? I thought most things were kind of back to the way they were. What's happening with blood donation? Yeah, it's amazing how so many things have changed and so many things have not changed. But one of the things that have changed radically uh, in our society is that because we have lots of folks working from home, the business-hosted blood drives, the donations that business-hosted blood drives are not happening as much because literally people aren't going into the office. So about we're down by about 50% from where we were in 2019, which wow. is about 90,000 donations nationwide. About 10% of our overall donations are not happening compared to where they were in 2019. And that has a major structural issue that compounds some of the seasonal challenges we have with winter weather, folks going away for the holidays, all of that. And that's why we have an emergency shortage. We need everyone to give the gift of life because to help a hospital patient in need. That's really a staggering uh, number. And um, I'm trying to think maybe some other reasons why people aren't going, but that like you can't really change people coming back into the office from your standpoint, probably. But what are some of the the things that can people can do to um, get blood to the donation centers? Well, one one opportunity is actually to have more folks organize blood drives. So whether it's at a place of worship, a, a university, um, a community organization, getting more folks to organize blood drives to make up for those business-hosted blood drives, that's one opportunity. Another opportunity is for folks just to step up on their own. There's a lot of places for folks to donate. Just need to go to our, our website at vitalent.org or call 877-25-VITAL. Um, all of those are opportunities for folks to go to donate on their own to help a possible patient in need. You know, and I'm just sitting here thinking myself, I have never donated blood ever. And, wow. you know, I and really, I, what's my excuse? Maybe I don't like needles or, or whatever, but I, I can, I'm sitting here thinking, my goodness, I never have done it. And, and I could step up and do that. And I mean, for the people like me, who have never done it before. Is it an easy process? Is it something that everyone can participate in? Or are there some people that would be excluded for some health reason? Yeah, the the vast majority of American adults are eligible to donate blood. There are certain uh, restrictions, certain travel restrictions. If you've visited a malarial zone recently, um, there are certain health restrictions if you're taking certain medicines. But in general, 
the vast majority of people like folks say, oh, I have diabetes. I can't donate. That's not true. So there are there are a lot of opportunities to donate that people and you can go to our website to find out what those uh, opportunity, you know, whether you're in that limited number of folks who can't donate. But if most people can donate, you have to be 17 years of, of age in general, good health and weigh at least 110 pounds. And the process is really simple. Folks say, well, you know, I'm a little afraid of needles. It's literally like a pinch. It's literally a pinch. It really doesn't uh-huh. last very long. And you can leave, you know, a pinch really is, and, and you, with an hour of your time, you can help literally help save a patient's life. I mean, it's, it's such a compelling opportunity for one hour of your time to really do so much good for someone in need. I see. And also, like, what types of blood? Because I only just found out what type of blood I have for the first time in my life, like six months ago. Is there is there one type that's uh, more needed than others, that's more common than others, and some blood types that they can't or they don't take? Yeah, so uh, one oper- one reason to give blood is actually to find out your blood type. So that's how you get a free blood typing test when you actually give blood. Um, and uh, we need all people to donate, all people to donate now. Uh, there is a critical need. Uh, we're, we are in emergency shortage, but there's even a special emergency for type O blood. O negative is a blood type that can be used for any uh, patient. Uh, they can be transfused to any patient. It's called the universal donor. And O positive goes to all the positive blood types. And consequently, in, in a trauma situation where the physicians and medical staff don't have time to type the patient. They will transfuse O negative and sometimes O positive as well. So that's why O is needed, but all blood types are needed. We use the blood for a variety of different circumstances, different parts of blood for different kinds of patients, but everyone is needed to give. Tell me the name of your organization again. I think I mispronounced it. Is it Vitalent? Vitalent. Or? Yeah, Vitalent. Yeah. Uh-huh. Vitalent.org. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the website also, and people can find yeah. out where they can go to their closest place by going to the website? That's correct. Or they can call 877-25-VITAL. Lots of opportunities to donate at blood drives that are nearby. Well, thank you so very much um, for this really important uh, news. It, it truly is, and maybe it's finally time for me to go and have it done myself. Cliff Newmark, <laughs> thank you, right? Thank, Senior thank Vice you, President for Vitalent, the nation's largest nonprofit independent blood donation organization. That's Vitalent.org. Thank you so much for coming on The Way Home. Thank you, Laura. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Once again, here's Laura. My next guest has a lot of great information. Actually, five keys to helping a dog to be happy and healthy in the new year, Rachel Bellis is here and she works for the, uh, well, PETA, basically. We all know it as the people for the ethical treatment of animals. And she knows a lot about the behavior of animals and what is good for their spirits, their souls, their bodies, and their minds. Rachel, hi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. It's a pleasure. So five keys. I, I just got a puppy this summer. I'm totally madly in love with her. Um, I will have to say that I feel like I am not good at training her yet. And um, I do as much as I can to keep her happy and and safe. But I, I know that there's more I could learn on it. I wish I had done a little bit more reading up on the topic when I got her. But nonetheless, trying to do my best. What are some things you'd like to share with us? Well, today I would love to talk about crating and the dangers of crating because we are seeing a trend where people are leaving their dogs 
locked in a crate for eight to 10 hours a day or more if they're crating them overnight. And it's like being locked in a closet. If we were locked in a closet all day, hours on end, and we didn't know why we would feel sad and lonely and scared. And this is how dogs feel when they're crated. It's nothing more than a convenience tool for humans. And so we would love to offer some alternative ways to make sure that your companion canine is healthy and happy. I think that's great because I think a lot of people, you know, they're not doing it to be cruel. They think that, well, it's safer for the dog to be enclosed than to just be roaming free in the house, could eat something that's not good for it. Or, you know, there's a myriad reasons why people do crate. But I'm interested in hearing um, ways that we can avoid that and still make sure that our our pets are safe and healthy. Right. Right. So first thing is to dog proof your home, which means uh, removing any plants that could be toxic to your dogs, making sure that they can't get to them. Your cleaning supplies are safely put away. Your garbage can has a lid on it so your dog can't get into it. Your remote controls, your shoes, electric cords, anything like that that you think your dog might be interested in making sure they can't, they don't have access to that. And then when you leave them alone, if you have a new dog or if you have a puppy and you want to restrict where they go in the house, that's totally fine. You can put up baby gates and baby gates are great. If you want to keep your dog or puppy in the dining room or the family room, just make sure that they have interactive toys like Kongs with peanut butter that will keep them distracted Um, that they get lots of exercise and walk, that they're getting attention and love and play. These are all things that are going to make your companion canine happy and healthy. And they want to be part of the family. You know, dogs are pack animals. They love us. They want to please us. And, you know, locking your dog in a crate is inhumane. It's solitary confinement. And we really need to get away from this and look for alternatives. And it's very easy to dog-proof your home. Very easy. I see. You know, when I got my puppy, I did get a crate for her to sleep in at night, but it's right next to my bed. And now we've sort of moved her to the bed with us. But I do have to say that when she's tired during the day after playing a lot and going outside with me and things like that, she will actually go to her crate herself and go inside and snuggle in there when she's sleepy. So in some, you know, she's not in there so much that she feels like that's her jail. Mm -hmm. I think that's where she feels is her little safe spot to sleep. Um, Is that okay? Well, as long as the door is open, as long as she can come and go as she pleases, that she doesn't feel like she's trapped in there. I'm sure that she goes in there. Sure. People call it a little den, to get away from humans or to get away from the kids or or whatever, but just leave the door open so that she can come and go as she pleases. We're seeing a lot of negative effects of continuous crating, like aggression, separation, anxiety, hyperactivity, depression. And these are all, these all can be, you know, if you, if as long as you don't crate your dogs, you can avoid these, you can avoid these behavioral issues, um, not all the time, but crating is, is an important factor because 
you're you're creating an insecure dog who might feel very protective of their space. You know, they're bonding with their crate more than they are with their human guardian. So if you if you do want to have a crate in your house, just leave the door open so that they can come and go as they please. All great advice. And I'm sure that uh, a lot of people listening to this are going to try to think of ways in which they can keep their pets safe while allowing them to roam free. Thank you so much. Rachel Bellis, Associate Director of Local Affairs for the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. Thanks for being on the way home today. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Laura. Thank you. And you're listening to The Way Home. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to The Way Home with Laura Smith. Here's Laura. Wow, that was uh, interesting. Lots of great information there for you. I hope it was all helpful and fascinating. I certainly found it to be um Learning about Marilyn Monroe, Ronald Reagan like that, um, up close and personal, I just find it so interesting. Um, you know, no matter how long ago it was that uh, they've passed away, they remain forever in people's uh, hearts, minds, memories and such. And always good to hear about taking good care of our doggies from the good people at PETA who do everything they can to really help animals in every single way and uh, more, so much more on the way home. But this is at the, the place in the show where we get to talk about just really happy, beautiful, good stories that Jim Cleefield, my sidekick, Jimmy Dean, has found out on the interweb. So today is no exception. We go out uh, into a Monday, into the new work week with some happy news. What do you have for us? We do. And as you know, our listeners who have been following this show, you lovingly call me J.D., of course, and uh, that just always warms my heart. Well, I want to tell you the story of another J.D. out there who is doing some good in the world. His name is Jimmy Donaldson. He's 24 years old, but he goes by the moniker of Mr. Beast. That's one word on YouTube. Mr. Beast, that's one word. And I'll tell you what he's been doing. He's been helping people see again. He didn't do this on his own. He had a little help from his friends. And he wanted to kind of help pay for cataract surgeries. They're very expensive. And there were some people, uh, particularly in the Jacksonville, Florida area he was working with. I guess he lives down in Florida who just can't afford that surgery. And he helped pay for their surgeries. Well, he teamed up with a local ophthalmologist. His name is Dr. Jeff Levinson. And uh, they got together. They contacted some homeless shelters and free clinics. And uh, with the help of an international nonprofit, I never heard of this name, C International. That's capital S E E, C International. They helped do this to help pay for these surgeries. And in the beginning, they had 40 of these patients get this complimentary surgery, and they got it done. This doctor did it, by the way, all 40 of these surgeries in a single day. Can you imagine how many hours that took to do that? That's just wow. unbelievable. Well, Wait, then, tell me how many again it was? There were 40 how many? patients, and they okay. did the sur- surgery in the beginning of. Just a single day for them, but it didn't stop with those 40 patients. It went actually and grew after that. Well, with the help of this international nonprofit I talked about, C International, it eventually grew to a thousand patients, and they did these same surgeries at no cost to them over three weeks. But here's the special part of this. This guy, Mr. Beast, I refer to him. He's an American YouTuber. He posted a video that went online. Guess how many views it got in a mere 48 hours? How about 45 million? Talk about a huge hit. 
everybody was watching this. Well, this video had these patients take off their bandages and to show everybody how much better they're seeing. He, I mean, Donaldson says he's, this is his words, curing blindness. This is what he said. I'm not saying this. And they took off their, their bandages, and these patients were just amazed. Some of them hadn't seen properly in decades. As a matter of fact, one patient, who we don't know whose name is, or it's a he or a she, took off the bandage and said, I haven't been myself for 62 years. I can actually see your face. I mean, just incredible. And it didn't stop there. He did some more kindness. In fact, he took it to another level, not just with this. He also gave some patients, with the help of these donations, $10,000, some of these patients, $10,000 for them. Another one got a Tesla. And if that wasn't enough, he paid $50,000 for another college fund. He did all of this. You talk about kindness times 10. Mic drop. I mean, this is just wonderful what Jimmy did. So tell me... This JD, so how does he get the money? Is it through donations it's from through C, his YouTube? It's the nonprofit C International. They helped uh, with the donations. That's the ones who were helped funding. I it. see. Wow, isn't that incredible? Yes, that is that is just incredible. Truly, truly. I mean, the gift of sight. I just can't even imagine what that must be like to be. And you know, glaucoma surgery back you know fifty years ago. I remember my great uncle having it and. It was like such a big deal. It really was causing blindness, and they didn't have the technology to fix it then that they do now. And what it must be for people to take those bandages off and go from not seeing to seeing, it's, oh, it must be so moving. Just nothing but goosebumps and gratitude for this uh, young man. You said 24? 24 years old. Beautiful stuff. Thank you so much for sharing that. I just look forward to this every week getting together with you. All in all, very grateful as we are truly now into 2023. You can't uh, deny it. The new year is off to a running start and I, I hope it's a good one for everyone and that dreams come true. Everyone is safe and uh, this is one of the healthy ones for the books for everyone. I truly do. And so Thank you so much for uh, helping me to put the show together today, guys. And always, you thank bet. you for listening thank to you. The Way Home. Thank you. Lots of love to all of you. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time on The Way Home. I'm Laura Smith. <laughs>